morning, turn with me to Acts chapter 24. Acts chapter 24. This morning we have a bit of historical context to cover before we actually jump into the key points. So let's consider a few things. When we left off last week, Paul had been arrested and it had yet to be determined what he had done that such a large mob had become so violent. Uh, they came and they they couldn't really figure out what was going on. Uh, they just arrested him and they figured they'll figure it out later. Uh, when our passage picks up, five days have passed and Paul has still yet to stand trial. So let me ask you this question. Have you ever heard someone allude to the idea that faith and reason are in conflict with one another as if they're these polar opposites or separated by some irreconcilable chasm? Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, the Lord actually invites us to reason with him. It says this, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. So reason and faith should not be seen as as polar opposites. They shouldn't be seen as uh, in conflict with one another. Uh, Rather, we should understand them in how they relate to one another, that there is a relationship there. 1 Peter chapter 3 Uh, Verse 15 tells us that we should always have a good reason uh, for what we believe, a good reason for our faith, and that at the same time, we should be ready to share that reason uh, with others. So biblical faith is is not believing without reason. Uh, Biblical faith uh, is is having faith for good reasons. Hebrew chapter 11 uh, says it this way, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, biblical faith, don't miss this, biblical faith is believing something that is unseen because you have good reason to believe so. When we have a proper understanding of biblical faith and biblical reasoning, then we can make an impact for the kingdom of God. So let's consider how Paul used reason at his trial. Acts chapter 24, uh, verses 1 through 9 begins. Now, after five days, Ananias, the high priest, came down with the elders and a certain orator named Tertullus. These gave evidence to the governor against Paul. Now, let's pause there just for for a moment. Uh, This is the prosecution team, if you will. Tertullus is like the the prosecuting attorney. Think of him in in those terms. As I read this, I want you to consider uh, the the type of language that Tertullus uses. He's going to use some flattery. He is a bootlicker. He is the type of guy who's using flattery to to make his appeal. So listen close. uh, Verse 2, and when he called upon Tertullus, uh, Tertullus began his accusation, saying, seeing that Through you, we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. We accept it always and in all places, most noble Felix, with all thankfulness. Nevertheless, not to be tedious to you any further, I beg you to hear by your courtesy a few words from us. For we have found this man a plague a creator of dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple and we seized him. 
wanted to judge him according to our law, but the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. By examining him yourself, you may ascertain all these things of which we accuse him. And the Jews also assented, maintaining that these things were so. All right, so let's pause. Let's pause there. Uh, you can just hear it. You can. We're reading through that. Uh, Tertullus is appealing to him and and really kind of exaggerating his his uh, flattery toward Felix, and then at the same time just saying, "Oh, it's so obvious that this guy has done all these things wrong. You'll see for yourself." And then he turns. You know, also makes these statements like. Um, you know, you'll you'll figure these things out. This is so obvious, and he just he's um, he's using this language to kind of appeal to Felix in such a way uh, that uh, Felix would just go in on his behalf. So Tertullus actually brings three charges against Paul. Well, what are they? Well, the first one is a personal charge. Uh, he attacks his character. Uh, he calls him a plague. He creates dissension. Everywhere he goes, you know, everywhere Paul goes, he's creating dissension. He's a plague upon society. Uh, this is not a real serious charge, but it is an attempt to attack his character. And that's one of the tools. I've, I've noticed this is like a mode of operation for the devil and his, and his schemes. Uh, he just, uh, that's one of the first things that the devil always does is attack character. Uh, so it, it's not a real charge in the sense that it's something worthy of death. But it is something that uh, he's trying to make his case before Felix, and he just wants to attack uh, the personal character of Paul. The second charge is more of a political charge. Uh, he says he's a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, this is certainly a more serious charge that Paul is involved in some illegal activities to overthrow the, the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana is just a, a term for the Roman peace. It was really important for the Roman government to have peace uh, throughout the land. And that's why they had all these governors in place. And the governors pretty much allowed the local uh, people to govern themselves to a large degree. But they their, their overall goal was to maintain peace. And then we have the third charge. And you might call this a principal charge or a, a charge, a, a doctrinal charge, if, if you will. And he tried to profane the temple. Tertullus recognizes that the Roman courts really don't care about Jewish laws. They're not interested in that at all. So he explains that they tried to handle it themselves. And, he, and that's where he's kind of like, well, we tried to do this, but the commander Lysias came by and with great violence took him out of our hands. And therefore, we're, you know, we're here before you. So he's got this idea of, you know, we wanted to handle this, but you wouldn't let us. So here we are. Now you have to handle this. And, and you know, you still have to listen to our laws. Uh, because you took it out of our hands. So let's pick back up verse 6. He even tried to profane the temple, and we seized him and wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came by, and with great violence took him out of our hands, commanding his accusers to come to you. So what is he saying there? He's saying, uh, Felix, because you took this out of our hands, um, we expect you uh, to judge him accordingly, even though it's one of our laws. Now, Felix then wants to hear from the Apostle Paul. Uh, and he doesn't even, he doesn't really address him. He just kind of simply nods his head. Uh, verse 10, then Paul, after the governor had nodded to, to him to speak, answered, inasmuch as I know 
that you have been for many years a judge of this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself because you may ascertain that it is no more than 12 days since I went up to Jerusalem to worship. And they neither found me in the temple disputing with anyone nor inciting the crowd, either in the synagogues or in the city. Nor can they prove the things of which they now accuse me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, so I worship the God of my fathers, believing all things which are written in the law and in the prophets. I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Now, after many years, I came to bring alms and offerings to my nation, in the midst of which some Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with a mob nor with a tumult. They ought to have been here before you to object if they had anything against me, or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement which I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. Now, let's pause there just for a moment. Did you catch that little dig toward the Pharisees? The Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead. In other words, they don't believe in the resurrection of Christ, but they do believe in the resurrection. What is the resurrection? The resurrection just simply is, is referring to life after death. They believe in angels. They believe in the spirit world. They believe that, that there is life after death. The, the Sadducees did not believe that. The Pharisees did. And here we have the Pharisees in uh, standing before Felix, and we have Paul standing before Felix and saying, and Paul is saying, maybe it's for this one statement that I cried out that they, that they, that they have a problem with. Concerning the resurrection of the dead, uh, I am being judged by you this day. In other words, he's saying, the whole thing that I'm proclaiming is I believe in the resurrection. Perhaps one of these guys from the Pharisees, maybe they're willing to testify and say that they really don't believe in the resurrection. Maybe they really don't believe in life after death. So he's kind of kind of he's he's kind of uh pointing them back to their own beliefs. And reminding the Pharisees, don't you believe in the resurrection? Uh, you're, you are saying you don't even believe in life after death, and yet that is what Christ has done. He has demonstrated that it's true. So let's pick back up at verse 20. Or else let those who are here themselves say if they found any wrongdoing in me while I stood before the council, unless it is for this one statement I cried out, standing among them concerning the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged by you this day. But when Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way. Now, wait a second. Felix heard these things, having more accurate knowledge of the way. Now, what is the way? The way is actually the church. Uh, it was what they were known as at the, at, at the time. They didn't call it the church. They, uh, they didn't, you know, they just called them the way. Uh, so Felix is aware of the church. He is aware of this group of people known as the way. And Tertullus really wasn't fooling him by call, calling, calling them a sect of the Nazarenes. He wasn't, it was almost like Tertullus was trying to hide who he was really talking about and just calling it a sect of the Nazarenes instead of calling it the way or referring to 
uh, this group of believers uh, that follows Jesus. Uh, he just masked it, if you will, uh, kind of hid it a little bit behind a curtain by, by referring to them as the sect of the Nazarene. So Felix adjourned the proceedings and said, when Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will make a decision on your case. Now, this is going to be a problem, and here's why. Lysias never shows up. <laughs> We're really not, not told why. We don't know why. We just know that Lysias is never going to show up. Paul is going to be waiting a very, very long time. We're going to read in just a moment that Felix allowed two years to pass. Two years. Two years are going to go by. Lysias never shows up. Now, let's keep going. So he commanded the centurion to keep Paul and to let him have liberty. In other words, he's going to have some freedoms. And, to, and told him not to forbid any of his friends to provide for or visit him. So Paul is going to be allowed some freedoms. Uh, he's not. He's he's still arrested. He's in. He's still in custody. But yet he's going to have the ability to have friends. He's going to have guests and so forth, and have certain freedoms. And Paul and Felix had a lot of conversations then over the next two years, and much of that is going to be focused upon the gospel because that's what Paul talks about. Paul is going to always talk about the gospel. Now Felix's wife, her name is Drusilla. Uh, you may not be familiar with her as much as you would be her family. Let's consider a little bit about Drusilla's history, uh, her, her lineage, rather, her, her family history. Uh, it was her great-grandfather that was King Herod. King Herod was the one that tried to kill Jesus as an infant. You remember the, the king that uh, declared all the, all the young male children to be, uh, to be executed. That was her great-grandfather. Uh, it was also her great-uncle, Herod Antipas, who killed John the Baptist. Uh, he mocked Jesus. Uh, so her, her family heritage is, is rich with, uh, with uh, tyrants and, and various people. So Herod Antipas, the one that killed John the Baptist. You, uh, then we have her own father, King uh, Herod Agrippa I, uh, who killed the apostle James. And if you remember, not only did he kill the apostle James, he attempted or wanted to kill uh, Peter, because he saw the popularity in this, uh, in, in killing the Apostle James. So she has a history here of, of her uh, family uh, being hostile, very hostile uh, toward Christian believers. They were quite familiar with Christians of the way, right? I, I mean, he, he is familiar with it. He knows who they are. 